As we return to John chapter 8, keep in mind that the Feast of Tabernacles has just come to a dramatic close. And I say dramatic because on the great last day of the feast, during the midst of this water ceremony, the Temple Mount is filled with pilgrims in prayer and solitude. There's a solemnness as the priests take this water mixed with, with wine and begin to pour it out, desiring the future blessings of God for the coming year. And Jesus interrupts this moment very dramatically, radically. And he cries out, if anyone thirsts, it catches everyone's attention. They turn. Jesus continues, let him come to me and drink. The moment is significant. And the response from those who are present, well, let's be honest, it's varied. In chapter 7, we read that many from the crowd, when they heard Jesus say this, they said, truly this is the prophet, which is a reference to a Mosaic prophecy in the book of Deuteronomy. Others said, according to John, this is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Some of them, though, wanted to come and take him forcibly, arrest him, and yet we're told that no one laid their hands on him. In the end, not only is it evident there were divisions among the masses as to Jesus' identity, who Jesus really was, but even the religious leaders, as the chapter closes, seem split on at least what to do next. John transitions from chapter 7 to chapter 8 by telling us, quote, this last great day of the feast closes with everyone going to his own home and Jesus retreating to the Mount of Olives for the evening. And then John 8 verse 2 gives us our context that early in the morning Jesus came again into the temple and the people came to him and he sat down, which was the customary teaching position, and he taught them. The scene that John provides has Jesus here. The day after the Feast of Tabernacles in the temple. Preaching. Teaching. When he's interrupted by a group of scribes and Pharisees who bring to him a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now we discussed this section of scripture, this story last Sunday. But it was clear. It's clear from the text. Just a simple reading. That these men had no compassion for this poor woman. Nor do they possess a sense of decency or decorum. They had zero interest for justice to be served. Instead, they bring this poor woman, they throw her before Jesus, who'd likely, by the way, been set up. The man in the affair is oddly absent. And they're using her to try to, to catch Jesus, to use her as a pawn to catch Jesus into some type of a, a legal conundrum. In verse 6 of chapter 8, John unmasks their true intention as seeking to, quote, test Jesus, that they might have something of which to accuse him. And to accomplish that aim, verse 5, we're told that they asked Jesus with this woman sitting at his feet. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Now these men, it's a setup. They knew if Jesus said, don't stone her for adultery, he would have been directly contradicting the law of Moses. Adultery was, according to the Levitical law, a crime punishable by death. But then on the flip side, if Jesus said stone her, he would have been in violation of Roman law, considering the fact that the Jews had lost their right to enact capital punishment some years before. It's a catch-22. And yet, in a stroke of brilliance, Jesus, he plays it right down the middle, 
he invites he who is without sin to cast the first stone. Not only is Jesus affirming this woman's guilt and the need for some type of an appropriate punishment, but he's inviting any of her accusers that were free of a guilty conscience in this particular situation to step up to the plate and initiate the stoning. And Jesus does this knowing they were all complicit and they were all guilty. John 8 verse 9, we're told that those who heard what Jesus said, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one. From the oldest to the youngest, Jesus, we're told, was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. Now following this very personal interaction that Jesus has with this woman, an exchange that you should note affirms her faith in Jesus as her personal Lord. I think she gets saved in the process. And one in which Jesus refuses to condemn her, but instead exhorts her to go and sin no more. Following this private moment, Jesus now turns his attention back to this crowd of onlookers who had been listening to Jesus' teaching before the interruption of the scribes and the Pharisees and the whole exchange with this woman caught in adultery. So we dive back in, chapter 8, verse 12, that Jesus spoke to them again. Now this word again, it implies that Jesus is likely referring, returning back to the lesson that he had already been in the process of communicating. He spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. As Jesus had done back in John chapter 6, when he declared, I am the bread of life, these I am statements. In saying, I am the light of the world, Jesus is not only using an important phrase, this phrase, I am, or eni ego, which directly correlated back to when God introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush. Moses said, what should I tell the people you, you, who you are? And, and God says what? I am that I am. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, he's building off of this divine name, this ancient name, and he's applying it directly to himself. But beyond that, in doing so, he's trying to now, I am, fill in the blank, developing or introducing more of the character and the personality, the purposes of Jehovah God to the people through his person. Keep in mind, John, he opens his gospel. John 1, verse 1, declaring, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then some 13 verses later, in verse 14, John says of Jesus, he writes, that the Word, this Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Speaking of Jesus, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of both grace and truth. If you want to know Jesus, you get to know God's word. And if you want to know God, you get to know Jesus. The two are tied together. Now, in regards to this specific statement of Jesus being the light of the world, please know that Jesus is building off of an idea that's already been established in both John 1 and John 3. In John's opening thesis, Verses 4 through 11 of chapter 1, he writes, And Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man 
sent from God, whose name was John. This is John the baptizer. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that through him we might believe. John was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He of Jesus, speaking of Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. This first introduction of Jesus being the light. Then, more specifically, Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus. The idea of light again emerges. In John 3, verses 18 through 21, we're told Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, He who believes in him, speaking of himself, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, Jesus adds, that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Without question, this idea of Jesus declaring himself to be the light of the world plays on this theological precedent concerning light, as well as the obvious spiritual symbolism. And yet while Jesus has used light, this analogy, to illustrate points to Nicodemus privately, he's now here in the temple in this very public statement, making it known to all. Now, for starters, in describing himself as the light of the world, Jesus is illustrating both his uniqueness in the world and overall transcendence from the world. It's interesting, but darkness. Darkness only exists via the absence of light. In actuality, darkness and light cannot coexist fundamentally. By its very existence, light eliminates what's dark. Within a given space, the more light, the less darkness. And the less light, the more it's dark. And yet, the two, darkness and light, are not inherently equal. The amount of darkness in a space is completely dependent upon the amount of light. You see, in no way can darkness drive out light. That's why they're not equal. Instead, darkness is just what remains when light departs. And in much the same way, the inverse is true. You know, the easiest way to remove what is dark is to simply turn on the light. Like, you don't have to take a baseball bat and run around a dark room trying to beat out the light. It would be silly and you'll do a lot of damage, which happens in churches, sadly. Instead, if you want to illuminate, remove dark, you just flip on a light switch. The greater illumination of light yields less and less darkness. It's natural. Well, there's much about light itself that remains a mystery to man. We do know that there is a substance to light, photons, and that light is fundamentally an energy. That's the physics to light. Again, there is no substance to darkness, but the absence of a substance. Without completely geeking out on you, because I find the science of light to be interesting, the simple and undeniable truth 
is that light is an essential building block for all living things. Beyond the evidence of the conventional scientific thought of our day, we're told in Genesis 1 what? In the world, a world without form and void, with darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, what happens? God speaks. And what does he say? He says, let there be light. And there was light. On the very first day of creation, God spoke light into existence, and all life followed. Sadly, though, after sin entered the human condition because of the poor choices of Adam and Eve, it was this world separated now from the light of God that subsequently plunged into a state of spiritual darkness. The life in man, yielded from the light of God, was no more in the presence of sin. Death, darkness, filled the void. And what resulted was both confusion disorientation and mayhem. Just read the first couple chapters of Genesis. When Jesus here says, when he declares, I am the light of the world, he is no doubt referencing something fundamental to himself that has been missing in the world. A world spiritually dead with the presence of Jesus now had the possibility of experiencing life and recreation. Think of it like this. Jesus, in being the light of the world, is the energy necessary for spiritual life. Clarity could morph from confusion in the light of his presence. A world disoriented and lost in the presence of Jesus being the light could find direction. Meaning could arise from this mayhem. As the light of the world, the very presence of Jesus could eliminate the darkness if we would allow it. One of the other fascinating aspects of light is that by its very nature, light's luminous. Not only does light dispel darkness, but light reveals what's present. Literally, light is essential for your ability to see or for you to see what's knowable. Taking it a step further, it is how an object interacts with light that actually determines what that object truly is or isn't. Light is luminous. You see, light brings with it fundamentally clarity. Light, light takes the things that are hidden and it brings them into view. Light reveals the truth. It exposes what was concealed by darkness and it uncovers what would otherwise be unknown. Beyond this, the greater our relationship with light, the more we're able to see and know the world around us. There's a contrast that's played, walking in the light or blindness. While human beings, and I am going to get a little geeky on you here, while human beings have three color receptors in our eyes, most of us, unless you're colorblind, and I apologize for that. Most of us, normal people. We have three color receptors, allowing us to interact to see three different spectrums of light waves. Red, green, and blue, that's, that's what we can see. And yet, do you know that the mantis shrimp has an astounding 12 color receptors in their eye? Like, it's, it's really trippy. You, we can see three colors, 
The mantis shrimp can see 12, 12 spectrums. Like their ability to have greater interaction with light equips them with greater capacity for sight. Now, what's a bummer for the mantis shrimp is that that benefit of having 12 receptors in their eyes is lost because their brains are really small and they can't process the complex data. At least that's the theory. And in a way, a mantis shrimp has the ability to see, but that's only half of it. The mantis shrimp lacks the ability to comprehend, which is another important component. I love the fact that Jesus not only enables the blind to see, but he gives us the ability to also comprehend what we're seeing. Next Sunday or the Sunday after, we'll see, but, but what comes after this is Jesus healing a blind man. And it's not that Jesus just restores the ability of his eyes to work. But all of the back-end programming that also comes with the miracle for him to understand what it is that he's seeing, because he was born blind, is unbelievable. Just giving someone sight would freak that person out. You'd have no idea what you're saying. But also, not just giving sight, but the ability to comprehend. Now, that is the miracle of Jesus being the light of the world. When Jesus says, I am, the light of the world. He is telling us, declaring to humanity that his very presence brings things that are in darkness into light, mainly you and me. Jesus enables our ability to see and to really know the world around us. In a sense, it's Jesus that provides us the necessary energy for life. And our greater ability to interact with his light yields a greater capacity for us to really see. John was clear that in his thesis that Jesus is the glory of God. And what he means is that his person and his life, the life and person of Jesus, illustrate for all of humanity how all have sinned and fallen short of that glory, this holy standard. The Bible declares unequivocally that none are good, no, not one, in the presence of Jesus. Both the sinner... And the saint, the moralist, every human being stands humbly exposed in the light of Jesus' righteousness. And yet, this declaration of who Jesus is, the light of the world, also comes with a promise. Look at it. Jesus continues, he who follows me, or, or literally continually joins or accompanies me, shall not walk or conduct oneself in darkness. It's impossible to conduct yourself in darkness if you're walking with the light. But, Jesus continues, you will possess or have the light of life. In its context, there is no question that Jesus is speaking here of the effects yielded and a continual relationship with him. A continual interaction with the light. While light exposes sin, by its very nature, the same light is also an essential component for life. Jesus not only, and this is what's amazing, he not only reveals your true condition as light, but then it's remaining in his light, the light of his presence, that transforms a person out of that true condition. As Paul says to the Athenians in Acts 17, verse 28, that it is in Jesus, in Jesus, that we not just live, 
But he says that we move and we have our being. Apart from Jesus, the light of the world, there's no life. Think of this process, if I could use another illustration, as being similar to that of photosynthesis. Like it is the very ability of a plant to absorb and process light that enables that plant to grow. You see, in much the same way, it is your continual interaction with Jesus, the light of the world, that enables your spiritual growth. Finally, it's a truth that light is inherently self-evident. Light doesn't have to prove itself. Light exists. It exists without your ability to explain its existence. It just is and is known. Even if you can't see it, doesn't mean it's still not there. As a result, light is unavoidable, undeniable, and in the end, it testifies of itself a point that Jesus' detractors pick up on. As the light of the world, Jesus is saying that he needs no other witness because he's light. So verse 13, and I promise we'll go quicker than just the amount of time it took us for that one verse. But verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Like the, the religious leaders, they're pointing out that, that Jesus' claim here to be the light of the world. It needed another witness to be validated. He's making claims of himself. So Jesus answered and he said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. Basically, I don't need another witness. I'm Jesus. For I know where I came from and I, I know where I am going. But you, you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgments are true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. First, I find it fascinating, interesting, that these religious men challenged Jesus. Why? They challenged Jesus because they actually did know what he was saying. The, the reason that they respond with such a kind of a vitriol reaction, and this, this interaction gets ugly the further we get into it, but the reason is because they knew what he was saying by saying, by claiming to be the light of the world, by using the title, I am. They knew what Jesus was claiming of himself, which is why here they are trying to publicly discredit Jesus by pointing out that he's making claims that are unverified by additional witnesses. Now, the truth is that they're failing to take into consideration the testimony of John the Baptist, right? That's why we spend so much time with him in the first couple chapters of John's gospel. Aside from the fact that Jesus highlights their glaring ignorance, this is what he means by saying, you do not know where I come from and where I am going. Like you're ignorant of who I am, where I'm from, where I'm going. You have no clue. But in responding to the accusation that the law demanded the testimony of two men to be true, Jesus points to his father as his additional witness. And then we see verse 19. You can feel it coming. So they said to him, where is your father? Now, understanding what Jesus is claiming, 
these men decide that it's time to bring up the controversy around Jesus' parentage. It was a scandal of the day. Okay, Jesus, since you bring up your father as the additional witness for your claims, let's, let's unpack that for a moment. Who is your daddy, Jesus? Like, we've ex- investigated the claims. We've gone to Nazareth. We've talked with those that, that knew Mary and Joseph. We know that Joseph isn't your father because Mary conceived before they were actually married. Who's your father, Jesus? Tell us. So Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And then John adds, as he does a measure of of commentary, he says that these words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Now, it's it's intriguing that Jesus does not delve into the rumor mill. Nor nor does he dignify his detractors with a specific answer to their question, does he? And why? I think because Jesus knew that no matter what he said, it wouldn't be accepted. Beyond that, Jesus knew that if he really told them the truth, who his father was, yeah, Mary conceived as a virgin. My father is the father. Like, they, they would not have believed. They weren't conditioned. to. They weren't set up to believe. Their hearts were hardened, and Jesus knew that, which is why he gets to the heart of the issue. He tells them, in a sense, that their hardened rejection of him, their inability to accept what he was saying is true, had really yielded an inability for them to understand anything that was spiritual or spiritually related to his father. They couldn't see him as the light of the world because they were willfully choosing to be ignorant and remain blind. So Jesus said to them again in verse 21, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. Now, that's loaded. What's Jesus saying? Amazingly, Jesus is telling these religious men that because they were rejecting him, and as a result, rejecting the father that sent him, the consequence was that they were going to die in their sins and not be able to go to heaven. That's what he's saying. Jesus is actually saying, hey, you guys, because of your blood, you're going to go to hell. Again, that's kind of a radical contrast to a modern church that avoids making such condemnations. He's literally telling his audience, that's reject, yeah, where I'm going, you're not going to go because you're going to hell and I'm going to heaven. Now, in response to that statement, where I go, you cannot come, what's their reply? They say, will he kill himself because he says, where I go, you cannot come. Now, in the Jewish mind, Suicide was seen as a one-way ticket to hell. That's not that there's biblical evidence for it, because I don't think that there is. But in the Jewish idea, suicide sent you straight to hell. No questions asked. So what they're saying by bringing this up is that, what, are you going to kill yourself? Because we know know you're going to hell, and we're going to heaven. You say, we can't come where you're going. Well, we know you're going to hell. You said, we're going to hell? You're going to hell, man. Like, this is the interaction. We don't want to go where you're going anyway. Like, obviously, things have gotten quite heated 
with all this talk of hell. Verse 23. You get it? Heated because of the talk of hell. Like, you get the joke? Okay, cool. Thank you. Appreciate it. And Jesus, just keeping you all on your toes. So Jesus, verse 23, said to them, You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Now, it's clear. Jesus isn't backing down from from the fight, is He? For starters, at a public forum, this is in the temple, it's public. He immediately just contra- he contrasts himself, like, real quick with these men. He says, he says, I'm from above. You blokes, you're from beneath. Like, like later on, he'll actually say that their father, you want to know about my daddy? Let me tell you about your daddy. He's the devil. <laughs> and he says, I'm not of this world. You are. Like, he's not mixing words at all. He's saying, I'm from heaven, and I'm not tainted by this mess, but you guys, you're from hell, and you're totally warped in your perspective. Though Jesus has already predicted that these men would die in their sins, he adds a bit more of an explanation as to the mechanism by which they would die in their sins. He says, if you want to highlight something, I would encourage you to highlight this, unless you're borrowing a Bible, and then maybe you should really highlight it. If you do not believe, Jesus says, that I am he, you will die in your sins. That is, that's a powerful statement. It's a powerful statement, not only in the moment and in the context in which Jesus said it, but let's be real, the the larger and more lasting implications for this statement for all of humanity is evident. Like first, I need you to notice something about that text. Your translation, it's likely that the word he, if you do not believe that I am he, the word he, it's likely that word is in italics. And what that means is that it's not in the original text, that it was added by translators for clarity. Sadly, though, it's totally misguided, adding that word. Like in the very faces of these religious men, what is Jesus actually saying? He's saying, if you do not believe that I am, not I am he, that I am, imi ego, again, invoking the name of God, you will die in your sins. And make no mistake about it. Jesus is invoking the sacred name of Jehovah. I am. He's applying it to himself. He is claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is claiming to be the voice that spoke to Moses from the burning bush, to be the one that delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage, to be the one that gave the law at Sinai. And because he's God, Jesus is also crystal clear here that anyone that does not place their faith in him as God will die in their sins and be eternally separated from his presence. Kind of on a side note, if you want just a rudimentary definition of hell, there's way more to hell, but just a rudimentary definition is that hell is just that. It's an eternal separation 
from God. Separation from the light of the world. Third, I want you to to, to notice the statement itself. In the statement, that Jesus is making a profound connection. He's saying, he's saying that your belief in him as God is directly connected to the forgiveness and the elimination of your sins. Now, where do you get that, Zach? Think about it. If failing to believe in Jesus results in a person dying in their sins and thus experiencing an eternal separation from God, then by default, the inverse is also true. That it is a belief in Jesus that saves a person from the death that their sin demands and yields life eternally. Finally, Jesus is clear that God doesn't send anyone to hell who hasn't first made hell his destination. In actuality, for the person who's rejecting Jesus, if you're rejecting Jesus, let me just ask you a simple question. If you get real upset about hell, I just don't, I just don't see how an all-loving God could allow such a place to exist, which is why I'm rejecting Jesus. Let me ask, if you're rejecting Jesus and you're bummed out about hell, like why would you even want an eternal existence in his presence? Like you should actually be encouraged that there's hell because Jesus isn't there. Like I really want nothing to do with Jesus here, so what is, what is it to think that you're going to die and not want to hang out with him? Like I know I hated your cuts for 80 years, 70 years, however long I lived. But you know, I've changed my mind, Jesus. Best bros forever. No, it, it, it's silly. Like in such a dynamic where you spend your entire life rejecting Jesus, and then you die, and Jesus says to you, you know what? I know you don't like me, but now you're stuck. You and I are going to hang out forever. Follow me. In a weird twist, wouldn't that be more hell? For the individual? Like, in many ways, and, and I'll, I'll say this and have to kind of move on, but, but I really do think the argument can be made that hell is the greatest act of love a sovereign God can make. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis writes this. And if you've never read The Great Divorce, I highly recommend it. It's about a group of people from hell that get to take a bus ride to heaven. Surprise, they hate it. Sorry, I just spoiled the book for you. There's a statue of limitations. The thing's been out for 50 years. But this is what he writes. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Well, then they said to Jesus, who are you? Which is... In normal circumstances, a good question to ask Jesus, but not in this situation. And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I hear from him. Then John again adds some commentary. They did not understand that Jesus spoke to them of the Father. Now, this question, who are you? 
I could see Jesus like turning to the brick wall and just start banging his head on it. Like, are you serious? I've spent two years, give or take, doing nothing but telling you who I am. And now you're asking me who I am? Silly people. How frustrating that must have been. He had to have been in a measure of just disbelief. He's been consistent of his identity. And then, I love this. While there were, according to Jesus, many things that he wanted to say and to judge concerning them in that moment, he backs off. He doesn't say or judge them, claiming that those things had not been sanctioned by his heavenly Father in the moment. So verse 28, Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Again, he is italicized. It shouldn't be there. It's not in the original. When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And as he spoke these words, John tells us that many people believed in him. In response to all these things that Jesus has been saying, he provides the audience an event to validate his claims. They want witnesses, right? He's like, let me do one better for you. Let me give you an event. And there's a measure of prophecy here. I'm going to give you an event that you can look to that will validate everything that I'm saying. He says, when you lift up the Son of Man, speaking of himself, you will know that I am. Now, now we know with the benefit of hindsight that this idea of, of lifting up the Son of Man is a reference to his crucifixion. And beyond that, all the events that happened during those six hours, which are amazing events, all designed to testify of who Jesus was. But what's interesting to me is, is the word that Jesus uses here. This word, lift up. You know, it can also mean to exalt. And I think Jesus is, there's a measure of play on words here. That though these men, these religious men, would nail Jesus to a tree, attempting to ultimately humiliate him. Jesus would see that act much differently than they. Well, they decided, and in their rejection, they wanted to humiliate him by crucifying him. Jesus saw this as a mechanism by which he was ultimately exalted and glorified. I imagine that this line, when Jesus says, For I always, always do the things that please the Father. I, I kind of see that as Jesus' way of, kind of tying everything that's been happening here together. And he's making it clear what? He's making it clear to the religious men as well as the audience that the way he handled that woman caught in adultery, which was radically different than the way the world would have, the way he handled it pleased his heavenly father. He wants to make that known. That it brought pleasure. Not that he condemned, but that he forgave. It's an amazing admission. Most notably, and in the context to that statement, John says that as Jesus is speaking these things, yes, you had these religious leaders, irate, but there were many people who believed in him. How revealing the words of Jesus yielded two very different reactions in the hearts of those hearing. For one group, determined to resist him, Jesus' words only did one thing. It hardened their hearts. 
but for another group of people present, receptive and tender to the things that Jesus was saying. What happened? His words brought about a saving faith. There's something happening in their hearts in the presence of Jesus. Romans 10 verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing. And hearing how? By the word of God. So Jesus said to the Jews, verse 31, who believed in him. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Well, Jesus has been in this tit-for-tat, right, with the religious leaders who are opposing him. John is clear that in this moment, he kind of turns from them, and he directs his attention, this specific exhortation, to the men and women whom, standing there while listening, are believing in what he's saying, right? He turns this exhortation to them. They have make, they've made the decision to believe in him, And now Jesus is going to kind of get a little bit more applicational to the original idea of him being the light. He's going to tie some things together. Now the reason that it's important to note Jesus turns to speak to those who were believing, the reason that detail is significant is because it's now going to explain the development of one's belief. Like Jesus says here, to those who believe, if you abide in my word, You are my disciples indeed. He's explaining here something very important for us, especially if we believe. He's explaining the mechanism by which your faith in Jesus grows, how it develops, how it strengthens. Faith in Jesus doesn't just begin by hearing his word and believing. That's how it starts. But faith develops according to what Jesus is saying here. How? Not just hearing the word, but making a decision to now abide in his word. What brings life originally, Jesus says, is the very thing that develops life. Since this abiding is essential to being a disciple of Jesus, we need to just consider for a minute what it really means to abide, especially in in God's word. The word abide... In the Greek, it's a verb. It's an action that describes the continuation, the continuance in something. In the scriptures, you'll find this Greek word translated predominantly as abide, but many other ways. It can be translated as to remain, to dwell, to continue, to tarry, to endure. Understand the word itself speaks to more than just reading your Bible or having your phone set up to prompt you with a scripture verse every Thursday. The idea of abiding implies not a reading or a glancing, but a full immersing of oneself in its pages. Writing in a completely different language, a couple thousand years earlier, but articulating the exact same idea. The psalmist says in Psalms 1, verses 1 through 3, Blessed or happy is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his or hers delight is where? In the law of the Lord. That was the scriptures at the time. And in God's law, he meditates day and night. Continual. Active. 
And what results in the life of this person? He shall be like a, a tree planted by rivers of water. A tree that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The idea of abiding and being planted communicate the same idea. While God's word is essential for spiritual life to begin, and you know that's how it begins. It's how it begins for all of us. At some point, whether it was at church, it was a still small voice, it was a moment of desperation, and you opened up the scriptures. At some point, faith began in your life because you heard Jesus speak through the darkness and say, Arise. And that moment, it did something inside of you. Life began. God's word spawned something that wasn't there beforehand. God's word is how your spiritual life was started. But please know that God's word remains the essential element for how your spiritual life develops. The light of the world continues his work. How? Through the revelation of his word. Let me give you a proof to that statement. Psalms 119, verse 105. Probably memorized this as a kid. Your word is what? Playing on the imagery? A lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You see, as Jesus continues this thought, don't miss what he says results in a person's life when they choose to abide in his word. He says, look at it again. If you abide in my word, you shall know the truth. Now, now understand, it's not like there's a moment you're given all knowledge. It's not what the word means. This word know, it, it can be translated as come to know. It describes a, a process of gaining knowledge, of gaining understanding. You open, you're not going to know everything. But if you abide in God's word, what happens? You will come to know and discover the truth. Not just the truth about this world, but the truth about yourself and your brokenness. If you're like, I messed up, I need to know what's wrong with me. Well, go to God's word. And as you're abiding and you're planting yourself and you're rooting yourself, there's a work that happens. You come to know. And what results? That truth? Oh. It sets you free. Literally, it sets you at liberty. And we'll get to that concept a bit more next Sunday. But please know that the result of abiding in, in His Word is a greater understanding of the truth, which with time, friend, yields this freeing work. Greater and greater freedom from bondage, freedom from captivity, freedom from condemnation, freedom from insecurity, freedom from guilt. There is more and more freedom that results when you abide in the truth of God's word. As I wrap this up, I want to ask you a question. Are you abiding in God's word? And only you can answer that. Friend and I had a conversation about the idea of abiding. He's like, well, how much time in God's word equates to abiding? I said, that very question 
indicates whatever you're doing isn't enough. Because you would never ask that question. It's a stupid question. Abiding. You can only answer that for yourself. Are you abiding in God's word? And maybe think this way. Is it enough? Because if it isn't, maybe there should be more. And define what that looks like. Sure, reading God's word. Like the, the discipline of, of reading day. That's a great first step. It really is. But the idea of abiding is much more than that. It's like a plant, a tree. Are you soaking up the light of the world? Are you rooting deep along the shores, the banks of a river that feeds the soul? Are you taking time to allow the light of the world to leave his mark on you and in you as you marinate on the things he has to say? Reading God's word is a great first step. And, and a great second step is attending a church whose fundamental mission is to be, an, for lack of a better way of saying this, a grow lamp. It's kind of what we are. We turn on big bulbs of God's word and we shine it bright so that you grow. We're a grow house. Reading God's word is great and going to a church where you're being taught God's word is also equally important. But no. If Sunday morning is the extent of your abiding, you're likely dying. I can promise you it's not enough. Never forget what brings life also develops life. And are you taking advantage of that? So Father, Lord, we just let that marinate.